Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your health care. You are listening to the podcast, The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. Today's guest is Dr. Erica Schwartz. Dr. Schwartz is a specialist in women's health and a leader in the Bioidentical Hormone Initiative. Dr. Schwartz's office on 57th Street off of 5th Avenue, a few blocks from mine. I feel like I keep on saying that. I have so many smart doctors around me that are <laughs> in our area. She's also the author of multiple popular books, The New Hormone Solution, The 30-Day Natural Hormone Plan. I saw a couple of other ones on there. <laughs> I mentioned the Intimacy them. Solution. The Intimacy the Solution. Right. Is, that, is that the biggest one? That's, was, no, that's the newest one. That's the newest one. And by one. the way, you are the smartest Doctor in the room. Mm, Absolutely. I'm with you. And the one that we may get to at the end, because I have so much important stuff to ask her, (laughs) don't let your doctor kill you. Yes. I really want to know. I I did look at it before. It was probably a few months ago, so I need to be reminded how not to hurt my patients. So anyway, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Erica. Thank you, Dr. Dean. My pleasure. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. What I really want to get into today, because this show is all about how do we empower the listeners, so that when they go to their doctor, and so many of them go there either with lack of information, misinformation, and don't always get the optimal treatment. So one of the things that you're obviously extremely well known about is hormone replacement for women. And I think the biggest controversy, which I want to get into, is, is hormone replacement safe for women at different stages of life? And what should they be asking their doctor? I'm going to ask you where I feel the controversy is, because what I see in my practice at times is that, you know, patients come in for various reasons. I don't really deal with the hormone replacement, but they'll come in and they're a gynecologist. You know, they'll have a lot of symptoms. They're either depressed or they're moody or they're having trouble losing weight. And have no libido. No libido. And typically, I would say in the past, I don't know if this has changed a little bit, but a lot of times their gynecologists would say absolutely not. You know, hormones are dangerous. Do not take them. And then, and we'll talk about the difference between the synthetic and bioidentical. But on the other hand, you have a popular celebrity, Suzanne Summers, who's tried very hard to inform the public about advocating for women treating themselves in perimenopause and menopause about taking hormone replacement therapy. And the thing that I'll finish with, and then I really want to hear from you, is that she mentions in one of her books, because it catches your attention, she goes, Menopause, she said, should be defined as egglessness because you're out of eggs. And she also describes this period in women's life. Now, this is her words, not mine. The seven dwarfs of menopause. Itchy, bitchy, sweaty, bloated, forgetful, and all dried up. So I'm asking you as the expert, who should we believe? And where should we, how should you advise these women? And obviously, I know each case could be individual. So, Well... So let me start by telling you that I'm an internist. I ran a major trauma center. It's my first Mm -hmm. job out of medical school, I mean, out of medical training. So I'm a critical care expert too. But for the past 25 years, I've been working with hormones, and now I'm working with the entire patient because everything's connected. So I actually am from the very beginning of the hormone situation to begin with. So first of all, without hormones, we're old we're dried up, we're sick, we got chronic illnesses, we have certainly no libido, and I don't think anybody would notice us in the street. So 
I think that unequivocally, hormones are crucial, but they're crucial in every stage and every part of our life. So the TV celebrity you mentioned, you know, she's not a doctor and this is where her problem came in. She meant well, I hope, because she brought up the issue of hormones that we used to call natural hormones and gave them a new label called bioidentical hormones, which only created more of a discord in the medical community. And you know how doctors are and how the egos take precedence over the I guess, importance of taking care of patients. So the um, American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology dug in and said, there's no such thing as bioidentical hormones. It's a marketing ploy. And I don't really care what it is because I wrote books about it before there was any bioidentical versus natural. There are different kinds of hormones. There are hormones that are molecularly, like, like the molecules in our bodies, like we have organic foods and foods that look just like Real foods versus foods that are GMOs and look really good, but they're not good for us because our body can't process it. It's the same with hormones. There's some hormones that work because they look identical to what our body makes, and those are called natural or bioidentical hormones. And then there are hormones that are like birth control pills, Premarin, Provera, which are things that the hormones that created this huge problem in 2002 when there was this big government-sponsored study but was paid for by the pharmaceutical companies that only looked at these non-identical hormones, non-human identical hormones. We call them human identical hormones in the medical literature so as not to get part involved in this ridiculous debate. Because the debate in the end actually hurt the patients, the women, because 7 million women went off their hormones in 2002 and were left to get sick and have absolutely no support from their doctors who listened to the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. And that opened the door to a whole new group of doctors that came in that are the integrative, holistic, complementary, whatever you want to call it, doctors who are not narrow-minded in their way of thinking who realize the importance of hormones. So I've been working with bioidentical hormones for the past 25 years. I have been on hormones for the past 25 years. Oh, is that why you look so young? Is Probably. That, the... <laughs> that and the aesthetics department in my in my office. <laughs> and also because I'm passionate about what I do. So I think yeah. passion kind of keeps you looking young and feeling young. So anyway, what happened was that there is no scientific literature that connects taking bioidentical hormones, human identical hormones, estradiol, progesterone, testosterone, to getting cancer. Also, if you look at testosterone, which is the most abundant hormone in women as much as men, and you know, and a lot of women don't know that. As a matter of fact, most doctors don't know that testosterone is the most abundant sex hormone in humans, in women. So if you have enough testosterone in your system, your libido will stay there. Mm -hmm. You'll be building muscle. It protects you against Alzheimer's disease. It's cardioprotective, meaning it protects your heart. And it actually keeps you young and healthy. If you change your diet, you exercise, you sleep, and you stop eating basically garbage right. because we have to eventually stop eating garbage. And you learn to deal with stress. You do all these other things. Anyway, so the issue about hormones is that unequivocally, Hormones do not cause cancer. There has never been any study that connected estradiol, which is what I'm talking about, natural hormones, bioidentical hormones, that causes cancer. Testosterone, sure, as anything else, protects you from it. And progesterone is kind of a neutral thing. 
It's the synthetic non-human identical ones that cause some problems. But even they are better than the aging process because the highest risk for getting cancer and chronic illnesses is aging. So let's not age. Mm. You know, I do want to explain for the listeners, because obviously you know this so well and comes so naturally, but when I tell patients, you know, that there is at a basic level such a difference between natural hormones or bioidentical versus what's been called the chemically derived, what they call CERT hormones. For example, the the biochemical ones, like as you mentioned, Provera and Premarin's made from horse urine Mm -hmm. and super more potent than the typical natural bioidentical hormone. It lasts right. a lot longer. Well, also, you know what? The thing is that the what we know about Premarin, which is what they were using before mm. they took everybody off of it. But by the way, a lot of people are back on it because they're promoting Premarin like crazy again because it's insane, lower doses, but the same. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, Premarin is made from pregnant mare's urine. That's the name. But the problem with it is that it has more than 200 molecules of estrogen in it, of which only one or two are similar in the way they look to our own hormones. So why would you, first of all, torture the horses and give it, and then do we look like horses? I mean, maybe some of us do, but I don't know that we'd look (laughs) like horses. So the thing is, why would we give that to us instead of using the same pharmaceutical processes and creating estradiol, which is an estrogen that looks exactly like our own estrogen, mm-hmm. testosterone I, that looks like a testosterone. Yeah, I had read that this Dr. Lee, I think back in the 40s, had, 60s. Was it the 60s? Yeah. That he discovered from yams and soy, by adding a certain enzyme, you get... Progesterone. The progesterone. Oh, the progesterone? It was progesterone. But and actually, the problem with Dr. Lee yeah. was that what he said was that um, progesterone was better than estrogen, that you should not use estrogen. He said that progesterone was good for osteoporosis, you know, because estrogen protects you and testosterone protects you from osteoporosis. Anyway, and that you should take progesterone. Well, it turns out that there was no scientific backup for that. He wrote a couple of books called about, like, what your doctor won't tell you about menopause and things like that. But the information he gave us really just sent us in the direction of I guess, natural bioidentical hormones, but didn't give us the truth that we need estrogen, that we need testosterone. And even up to now, the testosterone is still not what it should be, which is the most important gonadal sex hormone. When I saw patients in my practice, because I share the office with my wife, Dr. Ricky Mitchell, who was fortunate to uh, (laughs) be one of your students, one of your courses. My favorite. And (laughs) thank you. (laughs) And she was prescribing topical testosterone for patients. And my eyes kind of lit up like, you know, Dr. Ricky, what are you doing? (laughs) And she explained to Dean, these patients really need this. And, you know, I was, of course, you know, from the school of like testosterone women, they're going to start to grow (laughs) hair and their their voice will get like a tenor. So, but what you're really saying is being deficient is more of a danger. Of course. Than obviously having a good And that we don't know that. We have no method of measuring testosterone. We don't know. Today, 2019, we have no idea what normal testosterone levels for women are. We also don't know how to measure it. We have a lot of scientific literature that shows us exactly what testosterone's role is, as I said, to protect from cancer, to protect from Alzheimer's, to protect the heart, to protect the bones, and we do not give patients testosterone on an ongoing basis. Yeah, you know, if you give somebody too much testosterone, they will have side effects. But even if they have side effects, you know what? If they, you know, if they get pimples and you cut back the dose, the pimples go away. 
They stop protecting your brain. You're still protecting your heart. I mean, it makes no sense. We're talking about drugs that we give people that have permanent side effects, and we're not looking at a hormone that will protect you. And it's really crazy. The other thing is— And this is topical also, right? Well, it's topical. There are only three ways to give testosterone that works. You can't take testosterone orally, and I get a lot of patients that come from other doctors who really are not as familiar or as— you know, conversant with hormones as I am, and they will give them oral testosterone. Oral testosterone gets digested in the stomach and gets, it doesn't get absorbed, so you don't get an increase in testosterone level. So it's transdermal, which is through the creams, mm. the ones that Ricky uses. And then the better ways are actually injectable and pellets. You do think those are better ways? Absolutely. I mean, in our practice, we use, I mean, you know, listen, you have to listen to the patient and whatever's comfortable for the patient is what I do. I always tell the patient what I know. They tell me what they know by Googling or speaking to friends primarily and other doctors, I guess. And then I tell them what my experience is. So my experience is the transdermal works very nicely, but one of the way, like metabolically, the way it breaks down metabolically is you can lose your hair a little bit sometimes. And women don't particularly like they to lose like their that. hair. America, men are more used to it, I guess. You know? <laughs> Part of the process. Well, not you, clearly. <laughs> but anyway, so transdermal cream is great. And most women are very happy with it. But you don't really get high enough levels. Right, so if they're not getting enough improvement, they, that's what right, you go to the next. Right, they feel so much better. Right, so we do injectables. So injections, we give them intramuscular, so in their buttocks. And they come every couple of weeks, and they love it. And the improvement is amazing. And then they're the ones who actually want to have the pellets. And the pellets are put under your skin, also your buttocks. And they last three to four months. The levels are amazing. And most it's more, people like it. It's more constant, yes, I assume. Yeah, yes. yeah. And, pa- and patients do fantastic. So we have options, and there's no downside, so there's no reason not to try it. Mm-hmm. And if your doctor tells you, so this is what I tell my patients about GYNs who know nothing about hormones, absolutely nothing about them. They know only about disease. They don't know anything about prevention. And all they'll talk about is risks rather than let's look at the positives of what's going on. So I tell them, listen, you know what? There is no downside to trying it. And if you try it and you feel better, and then you can work out, and then you can start being in a good mood, and then you and your husband start having sex again, guess what happens? Your whole life improves so you can enjoy it. Do you think also, I was just curious about this, that some of the women especially get sometimes get put on antidepressants because they're moody or they're saying I'm depressed when this hormone replacement would really be the underlying and better option. Sure. Well, the problem is that the largest industry, as far as the largest drug industry, is antidepressants. And if you ask for the data, the scientific data about antidepressants, you know, SSRIs and all the other antidepressants everybody's on, you find out that there is no one who even ever figured out how antidepressants produce antidepression. Because if you look at why people are depressed, they're usually depressed for good reasons. They're either depressed because something horrible is going on in their lives or because their hormones are leaving them and they're drinking too much, they're not exercising, they're not taking care of themselves, and as such, they become depressed. It's a lot easier to address the pieces of your life, lifestyle, and make sure that they're on hormones because there's nobody who shouldn't be on hormones, literally nobody. And they'll do well 
and then they won't need antidepressants. And then the other fallacy is that people think that, you know, you can't get off hormones once you're on hormones, and that's a total fallacy. Mm. You know, I take people off hormones all the time because either they're on the wrong combinations or they've been taking them too long, and there's no such thing as a finite amount. Everybody's the first. So what would be a duration? I mean, we'll get into most, some specifics, but typically... You know, is there an age range or is it a question of duration, how long you would have them on the hormones or again, does it have to do with symptoms? I mean, if a woman was on it for five years and said, gosh, I'm feeling better, this and that, would you say just, well, it's five years, let's try it off of it or you say continue Never. it? No. Okay. I would say stay on hormones for as long as you want to feel good. I so, think it's important that you're on the right balance. And what happens is that I'll wind up changing them because they come from other doctors and they're not quite optimized. Mm-hmm. But the idea is, why would you take somebody off something that works? It doesn't make sense to me. Okay, so there's no really upper age limit if a woman was 75. Well, you know what? As I get older and the patients get younger, I get younger and younger patients. So now I have patients in their 20s and 30s, so I really literally start with us. And, you know, because they want to go off birth control pills because birth control pills actually put them into menopause, literally, and create a lot of other problems. So they want to go off birth control pills. So we put them on IUDs without hormones. And then you need to, you know, they want to get rid of PMS, and PMS is easily gotten rid of with progesterone. So there are a lot of young people that come in. So there's no too early an age. And I would say start earlier rather than later. But I have to tell you, if you ask me that 15, 20 years ago, I tell you most of my patients are menopausal because that's when they used to come in. Now people are smarter, they're more proactive, and everybody wants to get into prevention. You know, yeah, you were just leading into some of the case examples I wanted to go into. But before we do that, I'd just like to ask you, so when a woman comes in of whatever age, but let's first start with, I guess, your classical patients, the ones that would come in with the night sweats, the insomnia, the weight gain, anxiety, decreased libido, maybe a history of having a hysterectomy or IVF treatments, or maybe beyond birth control pills. What would be your evaluation? And let's also take into account, too, if or not there was a, a history of, let's say, cancer and a, a breast cancer and a, a mother or a sister, how would you evaluate this patient? What, what test do you think they should have done before you would even start them on the birth control pills? Well, unfortunately, I'm a conventional doctor, so I'm brainwashed about bloods. And I have just finished telling you how we have no way of knowing what normal blood test levels are for testosterone. So... You know, it's kind of ridiculous, but we do bloods on everybody. And we do an extensive panel of hormones from the, you know, pituitary, which is the master gland, down to, you know, the thyroid, the adrenals, etc. And we find out how things come out. We also do what we call biomarkers, which show us like what the distribution of fat, muscle, water in the body is. Because, you know, How much you weigh doesn't mean anything. It's how the weight is distributed that means everything. Then we also look at, depending on the age, we look at, you know, what their coronary arteries look like. So if there is any plaque or any thickening of the coronary arteries, so we know what the risks are. Because, you know, together with the bloods and everything else, we do telomeres on them. We do genetic testing on patients. The truth is that at this point, you know, the way I look at genetic testing is, you know, it's a very big in thing, 
But the truth is that it, just because you're going to get a genetic test that's positive doesn't mean that that gene will express yeah. and you're going to get sick with it. That's what I think is dangerous. That's why I also it, it I'm, very, I'm very cautious when Me I too. order certain I mean, things. they're like the blood and all of those tests, which yeah. I absolutely tell patients never to do it. What if you come back with a positive test? You, you know, like they were doing the, you know, the whole body CAT scans and PET scans. And right. what is that going to mean? Nothing. We it don't just, know. It's just like holding the sword of Damocles exactly. over your head. Exactly. And, and not letting other other factors, I agree with you, come into place. Right. So. so then we, the other thing, you know, we do basic spirometry to make sure that their lung capacity is normal for right. their age. And then, you know, we have another test that, you know, specifically looks like a mental acuity. And it's fun because you look on a computer Thank and you means. do a regular playing test. And it gives you a general idea. But the most important part, honestly is looking and listening to the patient. Right. No, people the forget. No, people I know forget that. I know I teach medical students as you right. do. Yep. And it's one of the things, even with all the great technology, and I'm sure there's going to be apps and artificial intelligence doing a lot of stuff, but the bottom line is really look. And you know, I know when I look at a patient, it's from our training, you know if they look sick, right. you know if they don't look well. But to get back to the technology stuff a little bit, do you get pelvic ultrasounds as baselines and mammographies and stuff okay, like that? Okay, so... They come from, they've already yeah, seen their gynecologists and the gynecologists are overdoing it. Mm. They're doing yearly mammograms and they forget about the fact that there is a lot of data that shows that exposure to radiation that mammograms does. The more, the longer the exposure, every if you're doing it every year, after 10 years, you're increasing the risk by like something like 30%. So I think you have to think twice before you're subjecting a 55-year-old to mammograms that you should not have done when they were 35. And so we don't think of that, and that's important. As far as pap smears, I mean, you know, you have the Preventive Medicine Task Force, which actually recommends fewer things. They said, okay, if you've had negative pap smears two years in a row, why are you doing any of them? Mm -hmm. Especially if you ask the patient for history and they're only having sex with one person or they're not having sex at all, then you know what? What are you doing to them? Why are you doing these things? So I think you need to take into consideration that it is about the individual and you have to respect the individual's right to be cared for in a really caring way. So do I recommend, listen, ultrasounds, pelvic ultrasounds, it's because I come from the school of thought that you have taking Premarin, so you may increase the risk of endometrial cancer, but that's not ever been proven with estradiol, which is what we use, and testosterone. So the other thing is it used to be like if you're bleeding after menopause, if, you have, if you're bleeding, then there, you have cancer. You don't have cancer. If you're taking hormones, hormones will affect the way it is, and it's normal for you to bleed. So I do occasional ultrasounds, pelvic ultrasounds, to make sure that the thickness of the lining of the uterus is low. And as you get older, it kind of involutes. It goes away by itself. The other thing is that, you know, there are other tests that have come into play. And, you know, there are a lot of gynecologists that are very gung-ho to take out the uterus. They say, I mean, I get this. I just had a patient yesterday who actually came in. She's in her late 40s, actually, mid to late 40s. And she had a fibroid, which, by the way, is never cancer, doesn't turn to cancer, is never a risk factor. And she went to the gynecologist and... 
they took the, her whole uterus out instead of hormonally trying to decrease it or maybe like embolizing, like trying to kill the fibroid off. There's so many non-invasive ways. But you have to realize we have zillions of subspecialists and the only way they make a living is by doing what they're trained to do. So if you're going to go to surgeon, you got to get surgery. Don't expect anything else. So I say get, go for second perspective, not second opinions. Go to somebody who doesn't stand to gain from it. Right. That's a great point. It's <laughs> like what I see in my practice with allergy, not to put a knock against the NTs, but it seems like a disproportionate patients end up having sinus surgery or multiple right. sinus surgeries. And when I evaluate them, you know, we're finding underlying allergies, we're finding other ways of medically treating it because surgery is surgery. Right, and you can't undo it. This is what people don't understand because the surgeon's going to say, oh, this is nothing. Well, it's nothing to them because they do it all day long. If you're lucky and you go to somebody who does it a lot. But the other thing is it's nothing to them. Recovery is still going to be six months to a year, no matter how unimportant it is or insignificant to them. And we're so quick to think that we're going to get a solution because we all desperately look for a quick, fix. You know, I had a professor of mine who was a great internist and he was coming out of the hospital. I'll never forget this one day. He was like limping. He just had hernia surgery and he turns to me. He goes to me, Dean, just remember when they tell you it's minor surgery, they're talking about somebody else. Right. They're they're talking about themselves because to themselves is minor surgery. The thing is, I have never, ever met anybody who had minor surgery who got up the next day and went to work. No matter no matter how laparoscopic anywhere, so think twice. And the other thing is that we have the sense of urgency. We think we have to do it because we've been told. Because people actually listen to us. I mean, on one hand, it's great that they listen to us because those of us who are serious and care about it and are not cavalier about what we say and have spent years trying to learn how to speak to patients correctly are fine, so you should listen to us. But then there are a lot of us who really don't know how to speak to patients, and the patients do listen to us. And the thing is that they will listen to decision and and think that the decision has to be made then. And unless it's life or death, and as I was saying, as I ran a trauma center, I know when that happens, it's never going to happen in any other area of our lives. You don't have to do anything. You can go home and think about it, and you can go home and think about it for a month. You know, even if it's cancer, there's no rush to making an immediate decision. That's Do some real advice. research. That's a great point. Right, because everybody goes into panic mode. And right. When cooler heads prevail, you can make a decision. Don't react. Right. right. And like, I, I love that way that you say uh, second... Uh, second perspective. Second perspective. You know what? That's yes. from Don't Let Your Doctor Kill You. Oh, really? You know, I oh, gave okay. a talk about that at my alma mater at Downstate. Mm. The dean invited me to have the dean's lecture, the president's lecture, I guess. And... You know, I I got really a great reception from it. And he said to me, you know, this should be required reading for all medical students. And I got four years later, because this book came out in 2015, I got a letter, a handwritten letter from a student who had been in the lecture and said that after four years, if she took anything with her, it was the fact of not harming. And what I said, which is, how are you feeling? Listen to the patient. Yeah, that's a great point. Because again, you know, in our training, we're so much trained to do something. Now, don't just stand there, do something. And doing right. something has its consequences. And But we're never told that because no, we're taught no. that if you don't do, there's something wrong. Yeah, it's kind of that, that macho atmosphere. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> Let me ask you about natural supplements because I believe in some of them, but sometimes they take a long time to work. What do you think about when women are coming in and telling you they're taking 
you know, Black Cohosh or Don Kwai? Do you feel they do anything or do get there certain brands that they really have to use? Because like I find a lot of times patients are taking a lot of these supplements and they're frustrated because it's, they think it's doing a little bit, but not a whole lot. Right. Well, it's very interesting that you brought up Black Cohosh and Don Kwai. So when I wrote the original hormone solution, which now is like the new hormone solution, mm-hmm. I actually went over all kinds of options of things you could do to balance your hormones at various ages. And the truth is that we have no scientific literature to prove that Don Kwai or Black Cohosh help in any way. And they don't actually. And it's a big industry. The supplement industry is not FDA regulated, and there are a lot of people who take advantage. And I don't think that we all understand. I mean, we're all online all the time on Instagram, getting our information from Instagram or Facebook or wherever, and we to- and from Google. And the truth is that we don't even know how to identify sources for the information that we get that actually come from a place of fact rather than fiction or marketing. And so what happens is that people will take, like even today, I was talking to a patient who's in London, who I just took off of all this garbage that she was taking because she had a hysterectomy recently. She's in her late 30s, actually. And the woman said to me, well, you know, I'm going to tell you the truth, which by the way, if you don't tell me the truth, I cannot help you. So, and I don't pass judgment because I have no judgment to pass, whatever you want to do, do. She said, by the way, a friend of mine told me she was taking ashwagandha and she's been taking a ton of ashwagandha. So I've been taking 15 of them a day and I feel very jumpy, but I think it's good for me. So I said, well, actually it's not good for you. And I just gave you an adrenal support, which does contain ashwagandha, but it also contains bovine and other adrenal support supplements. And it's something that is the result of 15 years of research, real research. So, you know, maybe you shouldn't take this anymore. And she said, I won't do anything anymore. But this is the thing. This is what people gain. This is what they gain their information from. Their friend tried this or they hear the sister mother try that. It worked for them. God knows there could be totally different situations. And you don't even know if it worked. Right. And they're just willing to try it. It could have been that she was drinking water instead of gin, you know, that worked. (laughs) We have no idea. So the thing is, you're right. What happens is that supplements you know, when, you know, you heard that before that I said that, you know, when I first started learning about supplements in the late 80s, I thought that they were total baloney. And the reason I did is because I'm a conventional doctor and we were taught that anything that affects everything cannot work because everything you're taking, whether Tylenols for your headache or, you know, Motrin's for putting a, a hole in your gut, whatever. Anyway, they're all specific. And anything else that happens as a result of it is a side effect. Well, as it turns out, it's, yeah, it's correct. But the truth is the supplements do affect everything. And so does everything else. The water you drink affects everything else. The air you breathe affects everything else. So supplements do affect everything else. You just want to make sure that the supplements you're taking are not really the result of somebody marketing better than we are teaching. Right. All right, I'm just going to, as we're finishing, I want to go one or two little cases. This is from your, your course. <laughs> I can't believe you have that in front. Oh, my God, what year and, was that? No, it, it says 2011, but I think You know, Dr. we're Ricky, relaunching BHI, actually. Are you? You yes, should. With all, and everything's going to be online courses. Oh, wow. Online, so everybody could just, the doctors can just go directly and get trained just by, you this know, This is terrific. I mean, as I said, my wife, Dr. Ricky, got the fortune, <laughs> since we're close by, of taking this course. So I want our listeners just to hear one or two 
two cases here, Dr. Eric, in action. So let's just go through one case, one study. I think you would call this the the mild group. It was a 14-year-old girl who had irregular menses, mood swings. She was irritable. She had acne, which, of course, young girls, you know, it's it's horrible. She had weight gain about 10 pounds, which also really upsets them. And she had an early onset of her menses at age 11. And she was brought in by her mother. Her gynecologist had recommended birth control pills to regulate her period. Mom was not happy with this. And so blood work was done and all the values were normal. You had reviewed her history. She doesn't eat really well and she doesn't exercise too much except for gym. So you mentioned in this kind of a patient, you would typically put them on what you call protocol group one, which would be like a progesterone. Progesterone, right. Yeah, that's what, that's what I'm saying. What's interesting. So instead of putting her on the birth control pill, you would put her on a low dose of right. progesterone. So this is the thing, you know. This is like the protocol for the American College of Cedric's and Gynecology is to put on birth control right. pills. So birth control pills are synthetic, non-human identical hormones that suppress, stop your own hormone production. So when you measure in the blood the levels of estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, they look menopausal. So do you really want your 14-year-old to have menopausal hormone levels? They'll get osteoporosis, not to mention they'll get depressed too. Anyway, so progesterone is a very easy way to actually improve on a lot of problems. You know, like with this girl that she had the acne, which a lot of them do. Mm -hmm. You know, what I see all the time is... Everybody goes on Accutane. They go to the dermatologist. The dermatologist doesn't even, you know, they do their bloods to make sure their their liver function tests are normal. And then they put them on Accutane. Well, Accutane is a dangerous drug. And then, you know, it clears their face. It destroys their liver. But then they're hooked on the idea of, oh, I have to go back on Accutane. Right. And that's a very strong one. So that's a really good explanation. That's, again, something that I wouldn't normally think about. Let me jump to another patient, which, again, was probably your classic patient. When you were seeing a woman in their 40s or 50s, perimenopausal, having, you know, again, these on and off, you know, menstrual cycles, but having a lot of symptoms, the hot flashes, bloating, the weight gain, not sleeping well, loss of libido, uh, frequent urination, the foggy thinking. Your typical plan, if you wouldn't mind describing it too, is how would you combine the estrogens, the progesterones, the testosterones that readers could feel comfortable about the way you're teaching the doctors how to do it? Right. So we have protocols and that's what your wife, Ricky, has been following. And then, you know, the reason I give protocols is really as a starting point. And then everybody's an individual. So the more comfortable the doctor is, the better they're going to do with changing things. But the first thing I wanted to tell you about it is, first of all, I really dislike labels. And I think everybody dislikes labels. So calling women perimenopause, premenopause, postmenopause, menopause means nothing. I mean, how many people walk around and go like, oh, you're perimenopausal. Exactly. (laughs) The other thing that's a total fallacy is saying that a woman is menopausal after she doesn't have a period for a year and tying everything into the period. Well, guess what? It has nothing to do with it. Your need for hormones has very little to do with the presence or absence of a period. So I don't care if you've had a period or not. If you have the symptoms like the woman you just described, you're going to look at it. So when you look at their bloods, you, you know, and you listen to the patient, you're going to very quickly, you know, learn one thing that I've learned is that, again, what I was saying about the hypopituitary, the pituitary adrenal 
thyroid, et cetera, axis. It's a big thing for us in endocrinology, which, by the way, endocrinologists don't know anything about what we're talking about. Anyway, so this is the thing. The first thing to think about is really thyroid. And at the time that we started teaching people, which was in 2007, we were starting with estradiol, progesterone, and testosterone. And people did very well. And, you know, with some of the supplements that would actually clean up after the hormones. Um, But now it turns out that a lot of women, you know, are kind of burned out their adrenals. And the adrenal, you know, everybody hears about adrenal fatigue and they talk about that a lot. And that's because we work so hard and our lives are so insane. So the first thing is really thyroid with adrenal. And you can't separate the two of them out because once you treat thyroid, you should treat adrenal. And it has nothing to do with the bloods. Again, like testosterone, we have very little information about what normal thyroid bloods would be. I'm sure you remember when we were in medical school, they told us that the absolute definition of hypo, low thyroid, is a high TSH. Well, that's not true. We absolutely have no idea that that's the case. The case is base, you know, the temperature, basal temperature, the weight gain, the, you know, water retention, the foggy thinking. I like people when I examine the reflexes. That's right. That I mean, it's really a basic refl- test. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What Dr. Dean just said, which is so crucial, you know what? At the end of the day, it's the examination. And, you know, I work with a Nobel Prize winning person who is a big IT type of person who they're working on removing the doctors from the equation. And they said, we're going to get a computer big enough to store our brains in it. And I tell him without a doubt in my mind, and, you know, I hope these podcasts last forever, but I tell you, there's no way you can ever replace the doctor's brain in the evaluation of the history and the the. I the real. agree with you more. I think that, that and that's what, again, what I try to teach the medical students, as I'm sure you do also, that yes, they can come up with artificial intelligence that can mm-hmm. run through every research article, and it could be your assistant. It can come up and give you a list of diagnoses, and that's great. Right. But if you can't glean that critical pieces of history information, which a machine can't do, no. they just can't do that. They, no. That's that's human thinking. Right. Then that's where a lot of the disasters happen because people they start going down the wrong road. Right. Well, and, we see it all the time with know, the protocols. Yes. You know, right. because if you look at protocols, you know, I remember that somebody came to me years ago when I first started working with supplements about twenty two years ago, and said to me how often do you change the formulation of your supplements? And it was like a financial person. So I said, I don't know. I mean, every weekend I read and then I rearrange and I'm working with these things. And it was early. And the guy said to me, well, I guess we would not invest in anybody like you. And I said, why? Because I couldn't understand it. And he said, well, how are we going to stock them? Once we make them, we have to sell them. So I said, well, thank you, but we're not the right fit, obviously. So... You will change the protocols, and I teach the doctors how to change the protocols, how to do it, start someplace, and then start changing it, because everybody's unique. Yeah, that's a great point. What's the goal? The goal is to help people feel comfortable, I guess, with information that doctors actually give to them. You know, I was on the doctor's radio from NYU, right? So I was once on a, on a show with a cardiologist over there. And I think that what dawned on me was that as a person who listens, as an outsider, a non-physician, I would never have learned anything. And I think that doctors are trying very hard, and I commend you, and I'm very happy that, you know, grateful that you invited me to share with you, 
Because I think doctors have to realize that we're as human as everybody else. And unless you go to a doctor who sees you as a human being, respects you as a human being, treats you as an equal, doesn't discount, disregard anybody else's opinion, you're not going to get good care. And it's like a marriage. It's like a relationship. You know what? If it doesn't work, walk away. Otherwise, they will kill you. So it brings us to don't let your doctor kill you. Absolutely. I have seen doctors kill people, but it's not intentional. They're following protocols and they don't really care. And if somebody doesn't care, they're not going to help you. That's a great point. You know, when I sit with my patients, one of the things I tell By the way, they love him <laughs> because I send him a lot of patients. When I when I would talk to them, you know, a lot of patients, as you mentioned, were used to where the doctor was a, like the father or mother figure and the patient was the child. Right. And that was just the way it was. And doctors promoted that, especially a male. It was mainly a male-dominated field for many years. What I tell patients now, because what I tell them, I, I love that they're informed. You know, a lot of them go on the Internet. They get a lot of information. And what I say to them is this. I say, now we're a little bit more on equal footing, which doesn't intimidate me. I'm glad to be able to educate you. I said, the only thing I can hopefully bring, which I know what you do in your practice, is my experience. Right. If I've treated a thousand patients with this problem, I most likely know which direction, obviously right. with you know permutations, what you know how to handle it. And so that they also don't go off on the deep end, you know, right. just with this Google said all of this or all of that. I'm like, okay, some of that's right. But a lot of it I've seen doesn't really pan out. And 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 I agree with you. I think that it's a partnership, you know, between yes. the doc and a relationship between the doctor and the right. patient. And unfortunately, maybe a little bit because of all the bureaucracy and hospitals taking over a lot of the care that patients all feel... don't care well, anymore. Well, you know what? They're the so disgusted with yeah, the I know. system. I know. You know, I have patients with, I mean, doctors, you know, I go to dinners. I mean, I still have some friends who are doctors. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'll go to dinner and somebody will say to me, well, you know what? You're lucky because you write books and people mm-hmm. know who you are. Right. And, uh, you know, and you have a concierge practice. But the truth is... It's not that. It's I care Mm. and I'm going to listen to the patient and I'm going to respect the patient and they don't have to agree with me. And that's why, you know, we were talking about second, you know, opinion is not get a second perspective. Have you talk about something that's to do with allergies rather than me who sees, okay, let me just give them an EpiPen when they have an allergic reaction. You know, that's why they sent, we work together. And if doctors start working together and respecting the patients, we actually will improve healthcare. You know, one last thing I'll, I'll end on, you know, I was watching once an interview with Michael Crichton, who was a, obviously right. the, the writer of Jurassic Park, all those famous novels. He was actually a Harvard trained medical doctor who really never practiced but he was a very obviously brilliant, observant person. And when they were interviewing him once, he said, what, what was the problem in medicine today? And he said, the problem is patients aren't getting their doctor's time. That time, you know, that individual time, they were right. really rushed and not right. being able to express themselves. And he goes, and that's what they want so badly. So of course. I, I agree. Everybody wants validation. Yeah. How are you going to validate somebody you don't notice? Exactly. Well, anyway, this was a tremendous honor for me, and I am nah. so grateful in this blizzard snowstorm today. Dr. Erica Schwartz, she <laughs> battled here without a problem. I battled. And I hope blocks. my listeners have enjoyed this. You have a website? Yeah, eshealth.com. Health.com. Please go to that to get as much information on any of the latest that Dr. Erica is always working on. And thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at Dean Mitchell MD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or at DeanMitchellMD.com.